Our reading this morning is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, on page 1177 in the Church Bibles. Ephesians 6, and we start at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is the word of the Lord. pray. Father, thank you that you know everything about us, that our life is in in your hands. You know the joys, the sorrows, the struggles, the difficulties, the hardships that each one of us are facing this morning as we've gathered. Father, my cry this morning is that you would meet us, not just in words, but in power. For your glory and for your sake. Amen. Imagine for a minute that you're planning a holiday. It's in the summer, you've been working incredibly hard, And you decided that you'd love to holiday to northern France. You've heard the beaches are amazing in northern France. So you rent a house uh, in early June to beat the rush to uh, get the house you want that's right by the beach, imagining a beautiful holiday. You're going to relax. You're going to walk along the beach. You're going to spend time with the family, with maybe parents, with your children, with your grandchildren. You're going to drink French wine. You're going to eat French bread. You're going to relax. You're just going to take it easy. You've built, you've worked really hard all year for this, and this is kind of what you have in mind. Beautiful holiday. But on the first evening after you've arrived for your holiday, you can't believe how much noise there is. There are planes, there are lights, there are people rushing around outside. There seems to be a cacophony of noise that wasn't the plan, and you literally only just get an hour's sleep. You wake up in the morning after that hour's sleep with even more noise, it seems, going. And this is what you see. Of course, I didn't mention that the dates of your holiday were June 1944 and the choice of your French holiday was the Normandy beaches. And you find yourself smack in the middle of the D-Day landings. One of the challenges for our lives, for my life, for your life, and for our lives, is why is life so hard? Why is life so difficult? If the kingdom of God is so good and so great, why is life so hard? Why is there so much chaos in the world? Why isn't life more like this beautiful holiday from the previous slide? And I think particularly, if I'm allowed to say this this morning, Christians can struggle with this. After all, God is on our side. 
We're praying. We're reading our scripture. We go to church, however often we go to church. But instead of that image of the beautiful beach, we find ourselves in the D-Day landings instead. About 15 years ago, I remember um, chatting to one of my vicars at the time. And he, he grew up in a Christian household. Um, he'd been a vicar for 20-odd years. And I was chatting him about his discipleship. And he said, as he reflected on his life with Christ, pretty much for his whole life, he said, you know, Tim, I was not equipped throughout my whole church life for when things didn't go well. I was really only equipped that things would go well. And so I found myself particularly ill-equipped to deal with life when things don't go well. The thing is this, even those of us who know that there is a war going on, even those who know that they've heard of this passage many times before, maybe they've heard a talk on spiritual warfare, you've heard sermons about the battle, but often in our minds our temptation is, yeah, that battle happens somewhere else. That battle is in the, the townships of South Africa. That battle is somewhere else. It's not on my watch, not in my job, not in my home, it's not in my church. It's somewhere else. My life should be by the beach in Normandy. We're looking beautiful. We're looking at this theme, as we've said before, at the kingdom of God, this term, which is the central message of the Bible, the central theme, the story about how God uh, comes his whole story into his world, is at work in his world, restoring his kingdom, bringing his rightful and good and kind rule and reign in this world. And today we're looking at this famous passage from Ephesians 6. We're also going to continue on into the passage in a few weeks' time as well. But I just want to reread those verses Stephen read too. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The New Testament regularly communicates, but we also see in the Old Testament too, that in this world there is struggle, there is hardship, and there is a battle. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There's nothing strange, there's nothing unexpected about life being hard. There are innocent casualties of war wherever you are across the world. Children, teens, women, impacted by war that's going on around them. They may be bystanders, they may be pacifists, but they get caught up in war. The Bible says whether you like it or not, the world we live in is a war zone. So when you hear a horrific story in the news, I wonder when you, if you watch telly or you surf the internet and find different news stories, when someone's been brutally murdered, or a child has been abused, or you see photos or videos of violent atrocities in Syria, or you see the systematic uh, rape of women in communities in war-torn countries, what do you do? When you read about the slaughter of 900,000 Rwandans 
over the course of a 100-day period, where you read about what happened, as Joshua's been reading recently in history, about the concentration camps in Auschwitz, do you say, what do you say to yourself when you meditate or you're forced to look or think about those things? Do you in your own mind say, these things are happening in the world because a political system has gone wrong, for example? Is that what you tend to say? When you see terrible evil, do you say to yourself that these things are happening because of, for example, mental illness, because there are a few psychopaths in this world, because of the impact of crowd psychology, or even because of greed? What do you say to yourself when you observe evil? Or do you say that beyond what presents, what I'm reading about, there is genuine evil? Something bigger is going on here, beyond individuals, beyond crowds. If you're someone who has sat here this morning and doubts all that, that there's anything like a supernatural evil force in the world and goes beyond evil psyches or ideologies, something Jesus personalizes with the name Satan and demons. If this morning you're sat here and you think, well, do you know what, Tim, that strikes me as slightly medieval, something impossible for people in our scientific age to believe still, one of the things I'd encourage you to do if you struggle with that is to pick up a book written now by, it's quite a while ago, it was written by the late Scott Peck called People of the Lie. I had to read it a number of years ago when doing some counselling studies. Peck speaks as a medically trained psychiatrist about his own encounter with people whose evil goes beyond psychological categories, people whose evil has a supernatural dimension to it. One of the reasons why reading the Bible is so important for us and to allow our, our lives to be shaped by Scripture, and to allow our lives to be shaped by the Bible. It takes the curtains away from what presents immediately in our lives. And for us as Christians, one of the ways we need to understand the world is we need revelation from God. We need prophetic insight. No amount of research you can do, no amount of historical study you can do, would ever cause you to see you, to see God for who he is. But God's revelation, God's revelation in the Bible, gives us into insight into the way the world is as we look out at what happens in the world. From the moment Jesus was born, inaugurating God's rule and reign in this world, he was under attack. There was a clash of kingdoms, God was invading Satan's usurped rule over this world as the true king was coming to reclaim what was rightfully his. Why did God enter this world? Why did God become a man? This is what we read in 1 John 3 verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to, to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to destroy the devil's works. Why did Jesus, when we look at the Gospels, I don't know whether you've spent time thinking about it, why did Jesus 
do so much healing and so much deliverance as you read the account of Jesus' life. Certainly, Jesus' healings and his deliverance show that God in Jesus was a person of love, a person of compassion. But he's also showing us the heart of God, but also that he was seeing God's kingdom overwhelming the kingdom of Satan. Why did Jesus die? Certainly he died, as we've often heard in this church, and you may well have uh, heard many times before. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. He paid our debts. He died in our place. Jesus died in our place as a substitute to make us right with God. But we won't understand the comprehensive way in which Jesus' death and his resurrection actually impacts everything in looking at the whole of Scripture. And thus we see it that he also came to overthrow the kingdom of Satan. Here is what we read in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What was the resurrection of Jesus all about? Jesus defeated death. He defeated Satan and opened the way for those of us to be united to him, to be resurrected from the dead. It's why a Christian funeral is different from every other funeral. The entire Christian story, friends, as told by the Bible, assumes that we live in a place where there is a real war. To understand the truth of the war we're in or the battle that we're in is to see that it also is a continual battle, not just on a personal level, but also as a church. So many of us approach faith in Jesus as though all our problems will go away miraculously if we just believe in Jesus. Everything will be perfect. And then we struggle when things don't go straight like that. But reality shows you and I that these problems that we need to journey with God in, that all of them, all of us face difficulties, personal challenges, individual challenges, challenges of community and our work and all the things we do. That actually sometimes many people's experience when they first become a Christian is things look as though they get worse to begin with before they get better. But the church is Jesus' bride. It's the bride of Christ. And I know there are challenges about being church. I understand the challenges of living together, of uh, being together. But actually, it's God's plan for this world. You can read through the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, you can't read through the book of Acts without realizing the relentless attack on the early church. Imprisonments, beatings, martyrdoms, the stirring up of crowds against the early Christians. And when we see the divisions in the church, when we tempted to turn in ourselves or turn against each other, when we see the way the church has been, um, has essentially been a place where child abuse has taken a place, 
where we have not reflected God's love for the world. When you look at the state of the church and think this is God's plan, we can at times sort of bemoan God and think we look weak, we look compromised, we look bloodied. But people, we are in a war. There is a reality of a battle in the world. There's an ancient um, writings, a very famous writings, a military treatise that was written 2,600 years ago called The Art of War, which was written by a man named Sun Chu. It's said that to be one of the oldest books on military strategy in the world. In fact, its influence has gone beyond the military. It's actually used for, it was used as for business managers in the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s. And this is one of the things that he said uh, in, in the book he wrote. This is two, written 2,600 years ago. You must know your enemy before going to battle. If you know your enemy and know yourself, you'll come out of 100 battles with 100 victories. If you only know yourself but not your opponent, you will win one battle and lose the next. If you do not know yourself or your enemy, you will always lose. It's for this reason that sports teams prepare for a game, not just practicing their own things, their own practices, their own drills, their own things, but they study game of the upcoming opponents, where the strengths and where the weaknesses are. They know their opponent's tendencies, their strengths and their weaknesses. So this morning, one of the challenges about understanding the kingdom of God is this. Do you know your own enemy? The Bible calls Satan the accuser, the slanderer, the evil one, the, the serpent who is cunning, tempting, deceiving, the dragon, the father of lies, the ruler of this age, the adversary. There is a battle on. What does it say in verses 11 and 12 of the passage you've got in front of you? Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In this text, we discover there are three things particularly about our enemy that we need to take note of. First of all, his schemes in verse 11. One Bible commentator says this word combines the enemy's tactical shrewdness and ingenious deception. See, the enemy rarely attacks in the open. The enemy prefers darkness to light. Satan doesn't primarily use open warfare as his most common weapon. He prefers seduction to draw us into compromise or lull us to sleep so we're completely ineffective. Jesus, Jesus, sorry, Satan is just as happy if we sit in front of the TV for 30 hours as drowning our sorrows in escapist entertainment as it is if we're tossed in jail for our faith. Either way, we're no threat at all. Verse 12 shows us that Satan has described the powers of this dark world. 
The apostle Peter also calls Satan the roaring lion seeking to devour people. We know that Satan exercised terrible power over the minds of people, lying, crushing, accusing, and discouraging them in their faith. We have to come to grips in our own personal walk as well with the power of the enemy. How many of us are personally bound up or as a church believing the lies about who we are or who we're not? We're not loved by God. Can't be true. I can't be loved by God. I'm not worthy of God of love. Somehow we're just second best. I'm not the apple of his eye. I'm a crumb on the floor. Do we believe what God says about us? Do we allow God to have the last word in our lives about what we think and what we feel and what we know? The third characteristics we see in verse 12 is the spiritual forces of evil. Darkness is natural habitat. The darkness of lying, the darkness of deception. Our enemy is described as wicked, not logical, it's not fair, it makes no sense, it is irrational, it is chaotic. Understand our enemy doesn't go by a moral code that we would seek to understand or follow. There's no code of honor. He is evil. We need to know the truth about our enemy that enables us to then to be active and aware in our own battle. We're also called to know the truth about ourselves, and we'll look at this a little bit more in a few weeks' time. But are you aware of where you're personally vulnerable for attack in your life? Are you honest enough with yourself to say, here are some of the places that I'm weak, where I'm regularly tempted to sin, with my tongue, with my eyes, with a critical spirit, in getting too close to people I shouldn't be getting close to, in looking to be the center of tension? Are there things that trigger, become triggers for us to self-destruct? And are we aware of them? If we're going to stand, as this passage says, but also we then go on in the, the rest of the verses in Ephesians 6, we actually need to know ourselves. If we're in a war, any lawyer who, for example, we need to be aware of where our strengths and weaknesses are and not pretend that we're all going to be okay. Any lawyer who goes into court is not not only trying to put a perfect case to punch holes in their adversary's case, they also want to be completely aware of the weaknesses of their own case in order to defend themselves effectively. So what does it also say here as we come to finally the truth about God's power? This section of the passage begins this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power in verse 10. Words about the power of God, the authority of God are found throughout scripture, but especially uh, about the power of God in the New Testament. See, the Christian life isn't just a matter of right thinking, of having the right ideas, the right truths in our lives. 
or even about a new morality that Jesus came to bring. The Christian life is a life transformed by the power of God. The apostles regularly prayed in the early church for the power of God. They knew they couldn't stand facing the enemies and the struggles they were facing by on their own strength in, their, in themselves. They didn't just have new ideas, new truths, new morality. They needed fresh power. When the um, early Christians were being persecuted, they regularly prayed for God's power, and we see that in Acts 4 particularly. So this morning, do you know anything of God's power in your life? Do you actually pray for God's power, particularly when you're in a place of weakness? Lord, I need your power. Nothing is too difficult for you. We sang that song. The great power that Scripture talks about isn't just a power that's sat in God. It isn't just a power that we need to reach up to, to tap into. But Scripture also says it's a power that is within us. In the previous bit of Ephesians 3, his power that is at work within us in Ephesians 3, 21. God's power is in us as we're filled with the Spirit of God. So I wonder whether you take one of your personal challenges, your personal problems, whether you feel weak or whether you're consumed by anxiety this morning, whether you're struggling with lust or pride or unforgiveness. How do I find the power to overcome those temptations to live in that place? Where's my hope? Where's my real hope to live for God? 1 John 4 verse 4 says this, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. If you've accepted Christ, if you've invited the Holy Spirit to take root in your life and to fill you with his life and his love and all, the, and all his life, do you understand who that is? Do you understand what that's done to you? Have you grasped that the same Christ who is Lord of all is in you? He's in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ in us gave us power to love somebody we find it difficult to love. Christ gives us a power to forgive somebody who we should not in all justice forgive. Christ enables us to live for him as we draw on his power and ask him to fill us afresh with his life and his love. So let's pray. whether you're just sat there uh, this morning, sat here this morning, you could just put your hands open in front of you, maybe on your lap. And in a moment of quiet, uh, where you're weak, I'm going to pray for a second, then I'm going to leave a moment of quiet where you actually ask God for his power and his strength for your life. Heavenly Father, I pray that you show us your power that is at work in us. 
Would you stir up hope in us afresh when we're tempted and weak? Because of who you are at work in us. Father, help us to rely on your strength, not just today, but this week. Father, pray that you would flood us afresh. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. Flood us afresh with your presence. Fill us with life overflowing. And Father, would your presence flood our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our emotions, our wills. And Father, would that flow out into our behavior this week and when we encounter people who will test us, who will try us, who will take us to the end of ourselves. Father, we ask particularly in those places, would your power rise up in us? I'm going to trust in your strength this week because Christ dwells with us. Amen.